Well, good afternoon, everyone. I'm Michelle Easton, president of the Claire Booth Luce Center for Conservative Women. And I want to thank you all for coming today and welcoming you uh, to our September Conservative Women's Network Lunch. Special thank you to Bridget Wagner, representing the Heritage Foundation today. You know, Heritage and Luce have been putting these events on every month for almost 20 years now. Today, I'm pleased to introduce our September CWN speaker, Heather McDonald. Heather is the Thomas W. Smith Fellow at the Manhattan Institute, a contributing editor of City Journal, and a New York Times best-selling author. Her writing has appeared in numerous publications, including the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and the New York Times. Today, she will discuss the topic of her latest book, The Diversity Delusion, How Race and Gender Pandering Corrupt the University and Undermine Our Culture. And we are going to be selling uh, copies of this afterwards for anybody who likes it for $20. She argues in the book that the toxic ideas first spread by higher education have undermined humanistic values, fueled intolerance, and widened divisions in our larger culture. She's also the author of the 2016 best-selling book, The War on Cops, another great book. She's a non-practicing lawyer and Heather Clerk for the Honorable Stephen Reinhardt, U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit, and was an attorney advisor at the Office of the General Counsel of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency and a volunteer with the National Natural Resources Defense Council. She's also uh, frequently testified before U.S. House and Senate committees, and in 1998, she was appointed to Mayor Rudolph Giuliani's task force on the City University of New York, and she's received uh, a numerous awards for her writing. She's a frequent guest on Fox News, CNN, and other TV and radio programs. She holds a BA in English from Yale University, graduating with a Mellon Fellowship to Cambridge, Cambridge University, where she earned an MA in English and studied in Italy through a Clare College study grant. And she holds a JD from Stanford uh, University Law School. At the Criminal Legal Justice Foundation 2018 annual meeting in downtown Los Angeles, U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions called Heather, quote, the greatest thinker on criminal justice in America today. She's a very busy lady, a writer, a speaker, but in the spare time that she has, she loves the opera and she loves to swim. <laughs> Please join me in welcoming Heather McDonald. Thank you so much. This is a great privilege to be back at Claire Booth Luce, which did a lunch for my first book. Uh, so I am very optimistic that this will be a great launch for, for this book as well. Uh, I've been speaking on college campuses recently, so you know what that means. <laughs> I've received the walkout, the storm the stage strategy, and at Claremont McKenna in Southern California, the blockade which prevented anyone from actually entering the auditorium and hearing my talk. So-called students of color at nearby Pomona College announced that I was a, quote, fascist, white supremacist, war hawk, transphobe, queerphobe, classist, and ignorant of interlocking systems of domination that produced the lethal conditions under which oppressed peoples are forced to live, end quote. So to actually have an audience still in its seats and apparently willing to listen is a novel experience that may take me a while to adjust to. 
We've been hearing a lot of late about the free speech crisis on college campuses, but not much about its root cause, the narcissistic victimology that is rapidly spreading from academia to the rest of culture. In a word, the American university is in the grip of a mass hysteria. Students actually believe that they are victims of oppression at risk of their lives from circumambient racism and sexism. The degree of maudlin caterwauling is impossible to overstate. At Brown, students of color occupied the president's office and complained about having to meet such academic expectations as going to class when they were so focused on, quote, staying alive at Brown. At Yale, a mob of minority students surrounded a highly respected sociologist and cursed and screamed at him for three hours because his wife had the temerity to suggest that Yale's students could decide for themselves their Halloween costumes without oversight from the Yale diversity bureaucracy. Among the shouts of, shut the F up, and you are disgusting, that were directed at this mild-mannered left-wing professor was a cry of, we're dying, from one of the ranters, allegedly referring to the endangered status of Yale's minority students. But my favorite moment in this parade of narcissism comes from Princeton. In 2015, Princeton's black students chanted, we're sick and tired of being sick and tired. This was a phrase first used by Fannie Lou Hammer, who was beaten in the 1950s for trying to vote. Fannie Lou Hammer had grounds aplenty for being sick and tired of being sick and tired. But any Princeton student, I don't care if he's purple, green, or blue, who thinks of himself as oppressed is in the grip of a terrible delusion that will encumber him for the rest of his life. Perhaps you were thinking, well, at least the adults on campus are trying to give students a firmer grip on reality. To the contrary, the adults actively encourage this hysteria. A massive diversity bureaucracy is devoted to cultivating in students ever more arcane species of self-involvement and ever more preposterous forms of self-pity. You want to know the reason for astronomical tuition? Look no further than this bureaucratic bloat. Students regularly act out little psychodramas of oppression before an appreciative audience of diversity deanlets and vice provosts of equity and inclusion who use the occasion to expand their own dominion. Many campuses have created bias response teams modeled presumably on active shooter response teams on the assumption that discrimination is so rampant and lethal on campus that a rapid defense force is needed. Freshman orientations and dorm sessions invariably feature sessions in toxic masculinity and white privilege. Students are taught that they are either the oppressed or the oppressor. If you are not female, black, Hispanic, gay, or any of the 116 and still metastasizing categories of gender, the only way that you can escape being an oppressor is by becoming a, quote, ally. Allies are something we usually associate with war. 
And indeed, the reigning thinking is that female students and students of color are literally in a war zone on college campuses and need allies from the opposing side to survive. Am I exaggerating? I am not. UC Berkeley's Division of Equity and Inclusion hung banners throughout campus reminding students of the University of California's paramount mission, assigning guilt and innocence in the ruthlessly competitive totem pole of victimhood. One banner featured a female black student and a male Hispanic student allegedly pleading, allow people other than yourself to exist, a message directed at Berkeley's white students and white faculty. This is not hyperbole. They mean it literally. College presidents are the worst offenders in encouraging this delusional victimology. After the three-hour expletive-filled tirade directed against the Yale sociologist, Yale's president, Peter Salovey, actually thanked the Boorish student thugs for making him proud of his student body. Yale subsequently conferred a racial justice prize on two of the most aggressive participants. The dean of the Harvard Medical School recently removed the portraits of its greatest physician scientists from the entrance hall to the school. You can guess the reason. They were all male. And thus, looking on them would make Harvard's wilting medical students feel uncomfortable and unsafe. We can only wish these budding doctors luck in the operating room. Narcissistic identity politics has destroyed the serious pursuit of knowledge throughout the humanities and most of the social sciences. Students are being given a license for ignorance. All they need to be told about a book is the melanin content and gonads of its author to know whether they can dismiss its contents as thoroughly repugnant and not worth reading. Shakespeare, Milton, Plato, Kant, and Locke have been variously defenestrated by students who have not the slightest clue about Periclean Athens, the Renaissance, or the Enlightenment. A Columbia undergraduate groused about Columbia's beleaguered core curriculum, quote, who is this Mozart, this Haydn, these superior white men? The core, she said, upholds the premises of white supremacy and racism. No professor has ever defended our intellectual patrimony against such ecstatic outbreaks of know-nothingism without adding some puling qualification about respecting diversity. Academic identity politics are now rapidly spreading throughout the culture at large. Every non-academic institution no matter how previously meritocratic, is now vulnerable, and that means, above all, the STEM fields. Exhibit A in our culture's descent into identity-driven mediocrity and thought control is the firing of computer engineer James Damore from Google in August of 2017. Damore had written a carefully reasoned fact-based memo suggesting that the average career preferences of males and females may explain why there is not 50-50 gender proportionality among Google's engineers. The language that Google's CEO used in firing Mr. Damore was a direct import from academic victimology. Google's employees were, quote, hurting, he said, 
because Damore had dared to challenge the reigning feminist orthodoxy. What followed Mr. Damore's firing was even scarier. A regional branch of the National Labor Relations Board upheld Google's actions on the same bathos-drenched victim grounds. Mr. Damore's memo had made Google's employees feel, quote, unsafe at work, according to the NLRB Associate General Counsel. The memo thus constituted, quote, discrimination and sexual harassment. Consider for a moment what this NLRB ruling means for the sciences. Any evolutionary biologist, psychologist, or economist who studies the different risk preferences and appetite for competition among males and females is now at risk of his job. Those branches of science could be shut down completely, no matter the fact that they are true. The thinking that got Mr. Demore fired is now the dominant characteristic of our time. It holds that the absence of exact proportional representation of various racial, ethnic, and sexual groups in any institution is by definition a product of racism and sexism. To suggest that different groups have different capacities, cultures, skills, and behaviors that explain the lack of proportional representation is not just taboo, it will get you fired. And so the mad rage for gender and racial proportionality in the workplace is accelerating, especially in the Me Too era. From here on out, everything you read, everything you watch in the mainstream media will have been calculated in conformity with the demands of diversity. If you are a white male, no matter how talented, you're going to have to meet a hired standard to get hired or promoted. This summer, California Polytechnic University proudly announced that its crusade to lower the number of whites on campus was succeeding. Every college is, in essence, doing the same thing, if not as publicly. Newsrooms are under enormous pressure to find reporters, select sources, and originate stories that improve their diversity profile. Book publishers are obsessively scrutinizing their lists to prioritize, quote, diverse authors and themes. Thanks to media pressure and their own human resources departments, corporate boardrooms have made a fetish of gender proportionality. Even before California mandated gender quotas on, fem on boards, I voted against every female who shows up on a proxy ballot because I assume that she is there because of her sex and not her business acumen. Case in point, Drew Gilpin Faust, the outgoing president of Harvard, recently accepted a position on the board of Goldman Sachs. Now, who knew that left-wing history professors were experts in investment banking? <laughs> University administrators and faculty may hate capitalism, but they love capitalist dollars. Even classical music is being poisoned by identity politics. New Yorker music critic Alex Ross triggered outrage against the Chicago and Philadelphia Symphony Orchestras last spring by tweeting that they had programmed no female composers in their upcoming season. Never mind that at that very moment, Chicago Symphony Orchestra was performing Jennifer Higdon's Concerto for the Low Brass at Carnegie Hall, a work commissioned 
by both Chicago and Philadelphia orchestras, undoubtedly at grotesquely inflated cost. It is absurd to expect gender parity in the concert hall. The reality is this. The greatest composers of all time, whether Bach, Mozart, Beethoven, Schubert, Chopin, or Brahms, were male. Get over it. And simply be grateful for the beauty that they gave us unworthy mortals. But classical music boards are also under enormous pressure to hire by gender and race for conducting positions and everything else. A classical music agent told me wistfully, quote, if only I had a trans conductor, I'd be rich. Now, it is an unalloyed pleasure that Hollywood is being forced to sacrifice its best box office judgment to meet the demands of the race and gender bean counters. But it is in the sciences where the diversity imperative becomes actually dangerous. Every academic science department, whether physics, mathematics, or chemistry, is in the victimologist crosshairs. The federal government is demanding that scientific departments hire based on race and gender rather than scientific merit. Science education is being slowed down and watered down in the hope of graduating more females and underrepresented minorities. An oncologist in an Ivy League medical school was berated by his dean for an exam in pharmacology that was, quote, too fact-based. Well, I don't know about you, but if I'm going for cancer treatment, I want my doctor to know the facts about drug interactions. The National Science Foundation is spending billions of your taxpayer dollars on programs to boost diversity in science, arguing that only a diverse laboratory can achieve scientific breakthroughs. That's funny because the 200 or so Nobel Prize winners that were previous National Science Foundation grantees managed to discover dark matter and the genetics of viruses, among other breakthroughs, without conforming to today's diversity metrics. And of course, this mania for gender and race parity in academic science continues into the private sector. After James Damore was fired, a human resources manager sued YouTube and Google for firing him because he had refused to go along with the mandate to interview only females, blacks, and Hispanics for entry-level engineering jobs. Potentially groundbreaking scientists are being passed over today because they are of the wrong race and gender. Guess who does not care about diversity metrics? China. The best thing that Trump could do to level the playing field with China would be to airlift a few cargo planes of gender theorists from American universities and drop them into Beijing University and China's research labs. Until that happens, China will inexorably pull ahead since in science it cares only about one thing, accomplishment. Academic identity politics is tearing our society apart. It is teaching young people to hate, to hate the greatest thinkers and creators of the past and to hate their fellow Americans. The diversity delusion, therefore, has to be nipped in the bud. The next time self-engrossed students occupy a campus building demanding more reparations, 
Here is what their college president should say. Are you kidding me? You're the most privileged individuals in human history. You have at your fingertips the thing that Faust sold his soul for, knowledge. You're surrounded by libraries that would have driven the Renaissance humanists mad with envy and desire. You can read any book that has ever been written. You have access to scientific laboratories that are the most advanced in the world. You can pursue languages, literature, and history. Everything is available. Far from discriminating against minorities and females in hiring, every faculty search here is one desperate effort to find remotely qualified, underrepresented minority and female candidates who have not already been scooped up by better endowed schools. Far from discriminating against underrepresented minorities in admissions, we employ double standards in order to engineer racial diversity. I can assure you that my faculty are not bigots. They have nothing but goodwill for history's oppressed groups and want all their students to succeed. At this very moment, millions of Asian students abroad are studying night and day for the privilege of experiencing this alleged maelstrom of hatred. If you feel so oppressed, step aside and let them take your place. But a college president never says any of these things, of course. Instead, he is silent before these outbreaks of narcissistic delusion happy to sell out his faculty as alleged racists, and penitently promising to make further amends for so mistreating the oppressed students. It becomes imperative, therefore, for the rest of us to rebut the victimology narrative. It is not enough to call for freedom of expression. That is, if I may borrow a term, a relatively safe stance to take, even if you liberals will back you up. No, if we're going to restore sanity and civil harmony, we're going to have to take on the victimology narrative directly and assert that racism and oppression are not the predominant characteristics of American society today. For all our historical sins, and they were real and grotesque, there has never been a more tolerant, opportunity-filled polity than our present one. The preservation of freedom requires knowledge of and gratitude for the extraordinary richness of Western civilization with its patient development of the rule of law, the scientific method, and the concept of individual rights. Until universities return to their proper mission of passing on such knowledge, organizations like the Claire Booth Luce Institute and of course the Heritage Foundation will remain essential. Thank you for your attention. What an excellent uh, talk. What an excellent book. Thank you Thank so you. much. Thank you. Um, we have a little bit of time for questions. I think we have a mic uh, coming. Yes. Oh, wonderful. If you would uh, please give your name and your affiliation, and would you call on people? Heather? Of course. Let me find this one. Do you see a light at the end of the tunnel? Do I see a light at the end of the tunnel? I know I'm going to be very honest uh, with you. As a, in, in a position like mine, it's almost mandatory to be optimistic. 
And I'm going to share with you that, A, I'm a pessimist by nature, so take that into account. Uh, but I'm also a realist, and I have um, been writing about the Academy because it's the thing I care about most for 30 years, and it just gets crazier and crazier. Uh, I would say the best hope is that now the revolution is eating its own. Uh, you have left-wingers that are being attacked for racism and sexism on completely fanciful grounds, whether that will happen enough that those people on campus will rise up. Uh, certainly what needs to happen beyond just telling the truth, I mean, that's really what needs to happen is every one of us, if you have a megaphone or any kind of platform, you have to push back against the oppression narrative. Because as long as that remains the dominant narrative of the elites, the demand for preferences is going to be overwhelming, and the demand to shut down nonconforming speech is going to be overwhelming because it's done in the name of safety for these oppressed groups. But the other thing that needs to happen is alumni have to start exercising due diligence and stop funneling tens of billions of dollars into their alma maters uh, without paying any t heed at what's going on. Now, we're at risk of reaching a tipping point where the majority of alumni are themselves the products of the victimology university and buy into its premises. So there's nothing that they would object to uh, about the destruction of humanistic learning. Uh, certainly, the, you know, the election of Trump does show that there is a, uh, a, a fed-upness among a certain portion of the population uh, towards the strictures of political correctness. But with demographic change happening at, at the rate it is, uh, it's, it's sort of a race against time. Yes. For the mic. It's a good question, and unfortunately, the the brainwashing is happening earlier and earlier. Uh, there's high schools, whether it's a public high school or an elite private school, they too are now uh, subjecting their children, the students, to brainwashing and victimology. I was contacted by a very, very wealthy hedge fund manager whose name I'm not going to uh, count, but he, he made a lot of money uh, in the 2008 financial crisis. He has daughters at uh, a very elite girls' school in New York City. And they were given, they were in the fifth grade, and they were to have whole classes in trans indoctrination. There's a diagram that is out there. It's not just at this particular school. It's on the circuit that you, if you have children, you may have had the misfortune of coming across it. It's called the genderbred person. And it's a cute little diagram like a gingerbread man you might see at Christmas time with the various areas of genitalia and everything else pointed out with the message that everything is socially constructed. Uh, please be aware that gender is just a choice that one makes. Uh, and this is fifth graders. Now, this I would deem is sex abuse because children should be preserved in the zone of innocence 
about sexuality as long as is humanly possible. There is time enough in life to be plunged into the fatal knowledge of sexuality and sexual desires. But for God's sakes, allow children some surcease from the, the incessant uh, sexualization of our culture. But the identity politics uh, purveyors have to get their talents in earlier and earlier. And, and as people have written, GLSEN, and I don't mean to single out, per se, the, the gay rights movement, but it's just a fact. Uh, they're advocating for gay rights propagandizing in kindergarten. So, um, but, but nevertheless, to your question, despite the fact of this early onset victimology, my sense is, is that we, this culture is ready to be post-racial. You know, most students come to school and they just want to get along, nab a degree with as little studying as possible, mm -hmm. as much partying as possible, and they don't really give a damn about these things. And if we could just shut up and let people get along, but instead they're just hounded from the moment they get on campus to think in these categories. And, and so we're not allowing the natural evolution to take cur occur, yes. Hi, Heather. Cully Stimson. Great speech, uh, as usual. Um, <clears throat> I'm hearkening back to uh, the speech you gave at the Federalist Society National Lawyers Convention and tying this question to that because there's a through line here. Imagine, uh, if you would, and I don't think it's hard to imagine, uh, a series of suits that make their way to the Supreme Court, the suit against Harvard uh, by Asians. Mm -hmm. the, Sixth Circuit this week just ruled that the so-called campus tribunal rules are fair because unfair because they don't allow people to cross-examine their accusers. All these so-called free speech and safe space zones on college campuses, all these cases make their way to the Supreme Court and the court rules on the law and strikes down all of these, uh, uh, which on, on the law probably is the right decision. Mm -hmm. um, what effect, if any, however, would that have to ameliorate all of these negative consequences throughout society, especially at the college level? Well, I can't tell if I'm picking up from you a note of skepticism uh, about your proposition. And I'm going to, I guess, remain agnostic about it, but I will, I will tip my hand. Um, I, I've disagreed with, with George Will about this. I, I think he overstates the importance of the government regulations. Uh, he was actually persuaded by Drew Gilpin Faust, the former Harvard president, that, oh, it was just the Obama dear colleague, the 2011 dear colleague letter that imposed these draconian rules that violate due process that made us do it. Otherwise, we would have been just fair to males. I don't believe it. I think what's going to happen, you've got Betsy DeVos, who is going to be, she's rescinded the 2011 Dear Colleague guidance that said no, no, no cross-examination, allow the double jeopardy right of appeal for uh, acquittals, um, preponderance of evidence standard, a little hair of guilt means you, you're guilty. Um, unless she mandates 
fair procedures. I don't think a whole lot is going to change on campus because they are already in the grips of the feminists. So it would be good, you know, obviously, what, what I would really like the Supreme Court to do on the racial preferences issue, I frankly find this, the jurisprudential language around preferences, which is exclusively equal protection jurisprudence about strict scrutiny, you know, what, what is required in order to have the government categorized by race. It's a valid argument. It's, you know, it's real, there's reverse discrimination, and it is a, it is a serious constitutional violation, even though the court has been willing to wink it at it for decades now under the guise of diversity. For me, the more important critique of preferences is something known as mismatch theory, which is an empirically based study that shows that admitting students to an academic environment for which they are not competitively qualified does not do them any favors. You put them at competitive disadvantage. I'll take it out of race. Let's look at gender. If, if MIT admitted me because they have gender quotas, which I have no doubt they do, and I was there to fill, to diversify their, their entering class because they want more females, and they reached down, as, as all preferences do, and let's say I had on an 800-point score of SATs, I had a math score of 650, which is okay. It's, a, it's be, eh, respectable. But everybody else who'd been admitted on merit had 800 math SATs. What's going to happen to me my first year? I'm going to struggle. I am not going to keep up with uh, freshman calculus because the teaching is not going to be pitched at me. It's going to be pitched at the average level of preparation. And I'm going to flounder, possibly drop out of my uh, uh, intentions to be an engineer. Whereas if I'd been admitted instead of MIT to Boston College, where my peers had 650 math SATs, I'd be much more likely to persist in my intention to to major in STEM. This happens with black students. Uh, they drop out overwhelmingly from STEM fields. At law schools, the, the degree of racial preferences admitted that, that are used in law schools is massive. It's one to two standard deviations of academic qualifications. The black students all end up clustered at the rock bottom of their class. This is not a good thing for overcoming racial stereotypes. So the mismatch theory has been raised before the Supreme Court uh, in amicus briefs with the Fisher case. Um, I, I don't think it's probably going to, I don't know if it's going to come up with the Harvard case. But unfortunately, Antonin Scalia, in oral argument, referred to it. But his choice of words were not apt. He's a wordsmith, but at this particular moment, he sort of was struggling to get across the concept of, well, you're not really ready for this school. And it came off, the, the New York Times seized on it and said, mismatch theory is a racist theory. And whatever progress had been made at that point in trying to 
introduce it into the public discourse was dealt a very severe setback. But I would like to see that be the dominant mode of analysis for um, for looking at, at at preferences in affirmative action. I don't. I should. We don't use the phrase affirmative action because it has a a touchy feely feel good aspect to it. What we're talking about here are very large preferences, um, because and and these college administrators hold their data close to the chest. You have to drag it from them kicking and screaming because they don't want the data to be out there that would allow further confirmation of the problem of mismatch. Richard Sander, who's the most prominent uh, proponent of this theory, a liberal, very liberal law professor at UCLA, sadly just lost an appeal in the California court system trying to get the California bar to share with them its vast, highly detailed uh, database of undergraduate GPAs, LSAT scores, law school GPAs, bar passage scores and passage rates that would allow him to hammer forward uh, his thesis that by admitting black students with large preferences to law schools, you actually end up with fewer black lawyers because they end up failing the bar. I mean, 20, over 20% 20 of all black law graduates never ever pass the bar because they've all been put into schools for which they're not qualified and they learn less than if they'd been put in a school pitched to their understanding. So I think what we need here is not just regulatory, and legal change, we need to take on the factual, uh, the lies behind this regime uh, as well. Yes. Hi, I uh, recently graduated from university and a lot of my friends have bought into this uh, diversity ideology, so I was wondering if you had any advice on how to start a conversation with them and how to get past the screaming and name calling to an actual substantive conversation. <laughs> You're talking about me? I was surrounded <laughs> like I, you know, they wouldn't even let me talk. Um, yeah, I guess, well, like I say, I don't think being female is an accomplishment. You know, I, I, I just don't think it's, to me, it's irrelevant. I don't think I should be promoted because I'm female. I don't think I should study things that are female, I, I do not think it's an, the most interesting category about people. Uh, and I would ask them as well, do they really believe that they want their medical students uh, to be admitted based on race and gender? Do they think that's relevant? Do they really care about whether what the gender and race is of a doctor, or do they want uh, those medical school graduates to be chosen based on uh, accomplishments rather than the trivialities of race and gender. Uh, you know, females are just determined to believe that they still live in a sexist world. Obviously, in the Me Too movement moment, there are real predators out there that are 
in an employment context are exploiting their power, but uh, in general, you are much better off today applying for any job as a female than as a white male. It's, it's just an enormous boost. And it's, a, it's delusional to think that it, it's any other way. So I don't know. I mean, I, it's, um, it's a difficult thing. And it requires, at some point, being able to say that this is not a racist and sexist world, and that there are actual accomplishments that, that people can achieve that should matter in their promotion, but not something as limiting and tribal as race and gender. My name is Ryan Newhouse. I'm an intern here at the Heritage Foundation. I'm a recent student like her. Um, is there a point in history in which anyone can define where people lost sight of the importance of merit and hard work? Yeah, it's a good question. And is there a moment in history when you have the self-hatred in the civilization. I mean, it's, it's, I don't know of a civilization that has had this degree of self-accusation. It's quite amazing. Um, but I think it, it began really in the 1960s when you had the demands for, uh, Lyndon Johnson talked about affirmative action. And at the time, if it had meant outreach, which was how it was packaged, you know, uh, that would have been fine. But he said you can't take chains off people and expect them to run and, and succeed in the race. Well, that's true too. But it was assumed that by catapulting people into environments for which they're not prepared, they would be, you're helping them. And again, you're not. And I, I just did a, recorded a uh, TV interview on the Hill TV today, uh, and beforehand I was listening. To, you know, I was in the standing in the corridor listening, and I was thinking, "Oh, this is going to be fun," because the entire uh, panels they had beforehand was all gender this, race this. I heard the makeup lady say, "Oh, you can't believe the fascist political discourse I've heard in this green room." Um, fortunately, I was just on with Buck Sexton, who's a conservative. But afterwards, I was. There was a, a black Harvard student uh, waiting for me who said, can we talk about this? And, um, you know, it was basically, are you telling me that, he, and he admitted, he said, I'm an, I'm an affirmative action product. He said, my, my grades weren't that good. My test scores weren't that good. Uh, but are you going to tell me I shouldn't have gone to Harvard? And I said, well, uh, you may have done well, but I can tell you on average, Students that are admitted end up clustering. And you know, the, the sort of racial hysteria that we said, the key to this universal claim that schools are racism or racist is mismatch. This is what's driving it. Because students are being admitted, they're not qualified, they're they're at the bottom of their class, they feel beleaguered, understandably, again. Me at MIT with 650s, I would be struggling. I would be miserable. And I, had, I would have two options. I could say I was admitted to an institution for which I was not qualified, or I'm in a sexist institution. 
I feel uncomfortable. It must be because there's pervasive sexism here. And not surprisingly, most students in that situation choose the latter explanation. Um, so, so the sacrifice of merit began back then uh, with trying to catapult blacks ahead of, ahead of their catching up academically, and we've never looked back. Kui Bono, who benefits from this chaos? Because it's not, it's not totally organized. There's a, there are a lot of chaotic elements. And it's not logical, which I know is I'm, I'm being, uh, you know, whatever uh, your list of things. But I don't understand. Somebody has to benefit. Well, And I'm not sure if it's George Soros, you know, or, or, or what it is. It's not organized. And that makes it especially, and there's, you know, chaos theory and all that. Well, I actually, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. So, I mean, George Soros, I, you could get rid of George Soros. It's not going to make a darn bit of difference. And uh, I think this is ideological. And I think there is also uh, financial self-interest. I mean, these diversity bureaucracies are massive. I cannot tell you. Again, this is why tuition is so high. Uh, Berkeley's Division of Equity Inclusion, $20 million a year. UCLA's Vice Chancellor of Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion, he makes over $400,000 a year for nothing. UCLA is not racist and sexist, period. End of story. There is nothing for Jerry King to do. But his dominion expands. so. It's in the interest of the diversity bureaucrats to sow this idea of pervasive racism and sexism. But it's also in the preening narcissistic self-interest of college administrators to believe that they are standing up against red state America's bigotry. And that without their exercise of preferences, uh, Females would be discriminated against in the world at large, and minorities would be discriminated against in the world at large. So they like to look out over their diverse realm and feel the, the, the thrill of noblesse oblige. Uh, and and it's, it's, a, it's a power trip for them. But it does not, again, it does not help the beneficiaries. Nobody's saying that underrepresented minorities should not go to college. What I find amazing is that the presidents in respectable but non-elite elite colleges put up with this crap. Because the message is, is that unless this black student that I met at, at Hill, unless he'd gone to Harvard, his life would have been over. That supposedly the only way you can succeed is to go to Harvard or Yale or Stanford as if nobody could possibly survive going to University of California Riverside or Santa Cruz or uh, Boston College or University of Massachusetts Amherst. The, the uh, self-regard on these, but, but you know, the University of California is a multi-campus system. Uh, with, I think, nine or 10 now flagship uh, campuses. 
1996, the great Ward Connerly managed to get a voter initiative passed uh, that banned racial and gender preferences in government. And of course, the University of California system proceeded immediately to ignore it. But um, <coughs> the rhetoric, Berkeley's chancellor said, how can we possibly have future leaders in California unless Berkeley can employ racial preferences? <laughs> Why the chancellor of the University of California at Riverside did not say, excuse me, they can come here and become future leaders is beyond me because it's incredibly uh, condescending. Absolutely. There is a huge skills gap. It's, it, is, it has been a 200-point skills gap forever, and uh, nobody wants to talk about that. One more question. Something's wrong, Frida Hugley. The pool of applicants that they choose to go to these elite schools, there's something wrong with the process where they get these students who, who can't cut the mustard, shall we say. Who can't what? Cut the mustard? Cut the mustard, yes. Well, they're, 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 the applicants are what they are. It gets back to the same problem of what's in the pipeline, uh, that, that uh, families are failing and schools are failing. And um, I'm not going to exclusively blame the schools. I think we need to have a culture of achievement. Uh, there, we have to destroy the acting white syndrome so that students feel like they're as passionate about academic achievement as Asians are. Asians are whooping everybody's ass <laughs> for one reason, because their parents are fanatical about academic achievement. They ride them. They make sure that they're going to school, that they're taking their textbooks home, and that they're doing uh, their homework. And that, that intensity about academic achievement has to spread throughout culture. And if it doesn't, we can have, I'm afraid, we can have all the charter schools, we can have all the vouchers we want, uh, and you're still not going to close the achievement gap. I wonder if I could just ask, uh, Heather, you opened on, you know, you're naturally a pessimist, but you uh, need to be an optimist on this. Uh, for those who have uh, students as children or alumni looking at the campus, uh, speaking to young people, what would you recommend a young person, or are there organizations that you would recommend a young person getting involved in that, um, that give you hope or that um, would help them with arguments? What do you see on the horizon for uh, <coughs> alumni who are donors to get more informed? Everyone should go out and read the book and buy the book, of course. But what are some of the organizations that do work along these lines uh, in an ongoing way that, that the interns should get involved with or that um, the rest of us should be following closely? Well, I have nothing but respect for conservative students on campus today. I was not political in college. I, if I was a default liberal, but I didn't have to think about it much because this was before the onset of multiculturalism. So I was allowed to read the greatest works without thinking about the uh, melanin and gonads of the authors. Uh, and I'm very grateful for that. That was a privilege. Uh, today, it's hard. I mean, I think college should be a politics-free zone. I think it should be a total headlong immersion 
into greatness. I believe in the ivory tower. Um, but it's these days you sort of have to choose. So I'm, I would imagine that the uh, heritage interns know more about these organizations than I do. Uh, they're out there. Um, I suppose Young Americans for Freedom, the Turning Point USA. There's, I'm a great supporter of conservative newspapers on campus. They provide just an extraordinary check on the abuses of power of these diversity bureaucrats. But um, I would say again, like you're being stripped of your innocence here too. But I would say try and read the great books. Even if your professor is reading them through the lens of race and gender, this is your perhaps only opportunity to encounter these great expressions of imagination, empathy, and, and creativity. Seek those out. Um, you know, marketing majors are fine, but frankly, it's a waste of time. You can, you're going to learn that on the job. Um, so, again, the, your main thing there is to study, not to party, and not even to do political activism. But, and, and alumni should just, there's the American Council of Trustees and Alumni, uh, there's FIRE, there's, there are groups that are monitoring this, so it's, it's, up, it's up to everybody to keep informed. Well, thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you very much. Very Incredible insights. Thank you so much. Oh, Here's our lovely. limited edition clear Plum. blue loose coffee mug with her famous saying, "No good deed goes unpunished." So true. And a, and a tote bag. For oh, you to good. Put it in. I'll take my wet tennis shoes in this home. <laughs> and and uh, from Heritage, thanks so much for joining us. We've got something for uh, you to take into the fall, and we'd invite you all to join us for lunch uh, back in the Shaw Conference Room where we can continue the conversation. So thank you so much. We really appreciate you joining us here thank today. Thank you. I encourage you all to share uh, the archive of the video, which will be online and uh, go out. And I will be uh, selling copies of the book just outside uh, in the lobby. Thank you. Thank you. Can I ask you to take one picture of that?